If you got your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 1. I'll be there in just a minute. Luke chapter 1. Whew, that's good. So good. The sweet presence of the Lord in the house this morning. I just want to encourage us that what we get to experience here every week together is a beautiful, precious thing from the Lord. I got a, a couple of texts yesterday from people who have been here, and now they've gone on other places, and they're, they're looking for worship like this. They're looking for presence like this, and they've been to multiple churches, and they haven't found it yet, which is, in one sense, heartbreaking, but in another sense, it's like, I know. I mean, how many impacts are there? It's just such a beautiful thing. And I just want to, I, I, again, I just, the presence of the Lord that here is, is such a sweet thing, but the engagement that we as a people make when we worship together, that we choose to open our hearts and worship the Lord, that it, it's what changes things. And so I just want to continue to bless and thank you and encourage us. Let's keep doing that uh, because it is such a beautiful thing when the Lord comes and inhabits the praises of his people in a place like this. Before time as we know it began, God already had an established a plan. And that plan would require him the one who is love incarnate, love divine, to become the word made flesh. From before the beginning, the roots of Christmas were established by God. He himself would provide the only way for human beings to be reconciled to him. Thousands of years later, as that plan started to come to fruition, an unsuspecting poor carpenter in Nazareth found himself in the middle of a bind, like the one... uh, that Sarah was talking about last weekend when Jesus came walking to the disciples out on the water in the middle of the dark. Didn't Sarah do an amazing job last weekend? Oh my goodness, so, so good. Hey, if you did not hear Sarah's message last week, you need to go to the podcast or go to the, uh, the video and watch it. It is so encouraging, such a good and timely word. Anyway, back to where I'm at. This carpenter's name was Joseph, and God sent him, like he did with the disciples, he sent him the word he needed when he needed He got in his proverbial boat with him, and he totally changed what was happening inside of Joseph. His betrothed wife had been found to be pregnant out of wedlock, and he knew it wasn't his child. And yet he was still trying to figure out how to handle that situation without exposing Mary to public disgrace. In another case of classic biblical understatement, Matthew 1 says, As Joseph considered this, the King James says, While he thought on these things. Both of those things sound so nice. Just considering, just thinking on this situation. So nice, so calm. The passion gets a little closer to the original language. It says, while he was still debating within himself what to do. In the Greek, this is a very specific word that involves being in a fixed, stuck position of passionate, hard breathing caused by fierceness, indignation, and wrath. This was no Oh, I wonder what I should do about this. Like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do about this? That's what was going on inside of Joseph. There was nothing calm, nothing cool, nothing collected about the situation. Into the midst of that very real conundrum, Joseph, the man who would serve as Jesus' earthly father, was given a spoken word that he recognized as one of those unmissable God moments. Sarah talked about that last week too. And to his eternal credit, Joseph chose to instantly and fully obey. An angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Joseph, son of David. When I was reading this, the first thought that came to mind, you know, when you're growing up as a kid and you're doing something or whatever and your parents call out to you, David, David, you know, it's good. But when all of a sudden your parents go, David James? 
It's a completely different thing, isn't it? And so I don't know, when the angel shows up and calls, instead of just saying Joseph, he says, Joseph, son of David. I don't know if he thought he was in trouble or what was going on. I don't know how that came all out of there. But, but anyway, it created trouble inside him. Joseph, son of David. But then this precious phrase, do not be afraid. Man, listen, that's still how God approaches us today. That's still how he comes to us today. Uh, there is nothing that God starts or initiates that begins with fear. So something comes to you and it makes you scared and it makes you afraid. That's not God. Fear and love cannot coexist in the same space. Now, there is a, a reverence of God like, whoa, that's God speaking to me. That's a completely different thing. Oh, no, God's speaking to me. Two different things. Two different things. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Take Mary home as your wife. She'll give birth to a son and you're giving the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That word save is sozo in the Greek. We got a whole group of sozo happening over here. It's so beautiful what God's doing in their life. That word means saved, healed, delivered, and made whole. The truth is we got a whole room full of sozo taking place. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful thing. And the Amplified adds this uh, 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 to what save means. It says save prevents us from failing and missing the true end and scope of life in God. To be saved prevents us from missing and failing to get to the full end and scope of life in God. And then there's another footnote. Those who by personal faith have accepted Jesus as their Savior are saved. Listen, if you've never given your life to Christ and you're here this morning, maybe you came with a friend or something. It's just that time of the year we're getting to Christmas. Sometimes that draws people into the church kind of like Easter does. If you've never given your life to Christ, you need to do that today. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow, heaven and hell are real places. And the choice you make about Jesus will determine where you spend the rest of eternity, whether it's in heaven or in hell. And I want to encourage you, the only way to spend the rest of eternity in heaven is to surrender the control of your life to Jesus. You've already seen the testimony of two men this morning that were declaring that. And if something was stirring you, you've never given your life to Christ. You can do it right where you're at right now. Just say, God, I surrender my life. Come into my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Forgive me your sins. Just something like that right where you're sitting right now can change everything. But if you prayed that right then, or you want somebody to talk with you and pray with you about that, we'll have a team here at the front, and it'd be our honor and privilege to pray with you and lead you to the Lord. It's the best decision you'll ever, ever make. And I encourage you, if you haven't made it, do that this morning. So this saved says, it's those who by personal faith accept Jesus as Savior. They are saved from the penalty of sin and reconciled to God. Every time Christmas comes around, it's so important not to get caught up in all the lights, and all the gift giving and receiving and all the Santa stuff and all the It's a Wonderful Life reruns and to get so caught up in that that we overlook and we fail to reflect upon the reason for the season. The underlying reason Jesus came that first Christmas was to usher in a forgiveness that we could get no other way. And the centrality of God's plan for forgiveness of our sin is a foundational dynamic of the roots of Christmas. The original cry of the roots of Christmas still echoes into our day. Be reconciled to God. And that speaks of a moment of salvation we were just talking about. But it could also be you're, you, you know the Lord, but you are not walking with him right now. You're doing stuff you shouldn't be doing. You're going places you shouldn't be going. You're looking at things you shouldn't be looking at. The, the roots of Christmas cry out to you even this morning. Be reconciled to God. Set that aside and come back into agreement with God's purpose and plan for your life. And we 
are some of the people that God has chosen and set aside to be ambassadors of this mandate, this message, this ministry of reconciliation. I was thinking about all that, and, and then this thought came into my mind. Christmas is forgiving. Christmas is forgiving. And then all of a sudden, I had a better thought. Oh, wait a minute. No, Christmas is about forgiving. Christmas is about God forgiving us of our sins. That's why we have the day to celebrate because God in his kindness, in his mercy, in his goodness, in his love chose to send Jesus so that we could be forgiven of our sins. That reality can birth an overwhelming, overflowing gratitude that can affect our lives all year around as well as for the rest of our days all the way into eternity. As time unfolded, God's forgiveness reconciliation plan became the best Worst kept secret ever. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament times, God released at least 60 different hints that we now refer to as messianic prophecies, plus more than 300 other references. Some of the Old Testament prophecies are straightforward and clear. Many of them are indirect and veiled, but here's what's so radical. Every one of them, all of them, all 360 plus of them were fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, We were in California last week, had a great time with our our kids and our grandkids out there. And our oldest daughter, Noah, um, she was in the Nutcracker, which is one of the reasons we went out there to see him and see her do all of that kind of stuff. And and, uh, but she was talking about something she'd learned in schools, a word I'd never heard of before, Google. Now, not the Google like Google on your phone, but it's a math number, Google, G-O-O-G-O-L. I'd never heard of that word before. It's one with a bunch of bunch of zeros behind it. Biggest number you ever heard of in your life. I want to tell you that the chance of one person fulfilling 360 plus prophecies and words, the chance of that happening, maybe one in the Google wouldn't even describe it. But Jesus did it. But Jesus did it. One time Jesus said, everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Everything must be fulfilled. It's another dimension of a God who's really into the details and who doesn't miss a thing. It's also a testament to a God who is consistently faithful. What God starts, he finishes. God's word does not return to him void. God's word does not return to him without accomplishing the purpose for which it was sent and released. God makes everything beautiful in its time, and he knows that time better than anybody. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Interestingly, part of that sameness involves God's sovereign choice to include and require the free will partnership of human beings. And this weekend, I want to take a closer look at the main cast of characters involved in and related to Jesus becoming the reason for the season. Luke chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 5. In the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. They had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Over 400 years had passed since Malachi had received the last word of the Lord for Israel. That's how the Old Testament ends in Malachi It's a word about the hearts of the fathers being turned to the children and the children being turned to their fathers. I don't know about your Bible, but in my Bible, my Old Testament ends, and I got this one page right here, and then I start with Matthew, the New Testament. That one page, that's 400 years. 
We turn that one page, 400 years of silence took place. 400 years when there was no word of the Lord, nothing spoken to the people. But all during that time, the ongoing work of the Levitical priesthood continued. And not only was Zacharias serving as a priest, he was also married to a woman who was a descendant of the priestly line of Aaron. And both Zechariah and Elizabeth were described as upright in the sight of God. The King James says they were both righteous before God. And in the Greek, that upright and righteous means they lived a life equitable in character and action. They weren't one way some days and another way other days. They were the same. What was inside of them was real and true and happened every day. They were people who were the real deal and they walked the walk. In the Amplified, it says they walked blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. That is high praise. Blamelessly. That means not missing any. You know, remember the one guy came to Jesus and he said, what must I do? And he said, just one more thing. That's pretty high praise too. You come to Jesus and say, what do I need to do? Well, let me just give you one thing. He said, well, okay, here's the list. And he rolls out this long list of things we need to do. Just one thing. But these two... Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, it says they blamelessly kept all the commands and the requirements of the Lord. That blamelessly means they walked above reproach in all their ways. And listen, listen, as much as ever, we need to and the world needs those of us who claim to love Jesus to walk above reproach. We have to live our lives at a different standard. We can't be blended in and camouflaged with the world. I say it a lot, but people shouldn't be surprised like, oh, you're a Christian? It shouldn't be like that. It should be, oh, you're a Christian. It should be like that. That the standard of life, the way we live, the way we show up every day, no matter where we are, at work, school, in the store, wherever we are, we show up in a standard of life that is above reproach because we're living unto the Lord all of our days. And that's the way they were living. And that's the way we need to live too. It's the best way to live. On the surface, there was no fault to be found in them. And there's no fault to be found in how Zechariah walked out his priestly responsibilities. I think we'd all do well to aspire to live and be people who live like Zechariah and Elizabeth lived. The only thing that would have been considered a blemish in their day was that they had no children. And as we shall see shortly, Zechariah did have a blemish related to an inward condition of his faith, but only God knew that. And here's good news. Even knowing that, God still chose to use Zechariah. He was not disqualified from being a key part of God's plan because of an internal blemish in his faith. And that reality is consistent with many other stories in the Bible. The Bible is full of stories about people who are struggling with their faith. And over and over again, God met and worked with them right where they are. And to this very day, God understands and knows our weaknesses better than we do. And in his mercy and by his grace, he still chooses to work with and through people like us in spite of our weaknesses. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Look at verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priests to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time of burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. He was chosen by lot. I was looking into this and there are estimates that say in this day and time, there are many as 18,000 priests and Levites that were serving. 
And those 18,000 were divided into 24 divisions. Each division served in the temple during the major festivals. And then each division came and served one week every six months. Because there were so many priests, special duties had to be assigned by lot. This particular occasion could very well have been the only time in his entire life when the lot fell to Zechariah to perform this service. Do you know Proverbs 16.33? It says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. In those days, they'd burn incense twice a day, and the smoke rising up from the burning incense was kind of like a call to prayer. Uh, In in Muslim nations around the world, they have the that starts blowing several times a day that calls people to prayer. And these days, the priests would go twice a day into the temple. They would burn the incense. And as the smoke came out, the people that were gathered at the temple, as well as the people around as they saw it, it was an invitation to pray. And so because he was chosen by Lot, this was a special day. But it was also just another day in the life of a faithful old priest until suddenly... It wasn't. Look at verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you're to give him the name John. uh, And he will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the disobedient to the wisdom and of the righteous. To be make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Unbeknownst to the assembled worshipers outside, Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, had showed up inside, and he was standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw Gabriel, the Amplified says, he was troubled and fear took hold of him. Now, that can be a pretty common reaction when an angel shows up. That happens pretty regularly. But what was interesting to me as I was looking at that is the word troubled. And this particular word troubled is very picturesque in the Greek. It describes clear, transparent water that you can see through, but then it gets stirred up and it gets cloudy because there's some junk that's in the bottom of the water. And so now instead of being able to see clear and through, now you can't because the dregs have been stirred up. Maybe, maybe it's a combination of many things in Zechariah's life that had created those dregs. You know, I mean, they had years of unanswered prayers praying for that child. Uh, disappointments, hurts, uh, the same kind of things that happen to us. And all of those things can have an effect on our faith tank. Proverbs 13, 12 even says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. God knows when our faith tank is contaminated. And in love, he sometimes comes to stir things up. God loves us just like we are, but too much to leave us like that. He's seen us in the future and we look much better than we do right now. And God was about to take Zechariah up to a new level of experiential knowledge. But there was some dregs that needed to be drained out of him first. At the same time, it's important to note that Gabriel didn't come to rebuke Zechariah or cast any judgment. Zechariah, you got dregs in your life. You need to get them out of your life so God can do something with you. That's not what happened. Instead, Zechariah came 
Zechariah stood there. Gabriel met him there. The word of the Lord came to him just like he was. And Zechariah was told, not only are your, uh, have your prayers been heard, your prayers are about to get answered. You and your wife will have that long-awaited child, and it's going to be a son. And beyond that, their son would be the long-awaited forerunner that Malachi had spoken of 400 years earlier, and his ministry was a key requirement for the coming of the Messiah. Zechariah and Elizabeth's son is the man that we now know as John the Baptist. It was amazingly good news. But was it too good to be true? Is it too good to be true? You know, uh, one of my favorite Graham Cook quotes is, if it's not too good to be true, it's probably not God. You know, because he is so much better than we are and so much beyond uh, how we are. And his thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts. But he wants to share them with us. But you're thinking, man, that is too good to be true. Hey, that could be God. You're thinking, oh, well, that's an easy thing. That's nothing. Maybe that's not. Wait for the too good to be true because often that's God. Look at verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. And the angel answered, I'm at Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you didn't believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Make a note, write it in permanent ink on your I lose it? There it is. If and when God speaks and reveals his word to you, the next thing to say is not, how can I be sure? That is not the next thing to say. There's a lot of things to say, but that is not the answer. At the same time, no stones here. We all live in glass houses, all right? Zechariah had lived his whole life honorably before God. He'd kept all the commandments. He had a clear conscience. He was a very good man. But from the overflow of our hearts, our mouths speak. And out of Zechariah came, how can I be sure? That's the vocabulary of unbelief. And all of us still have more than our fair share of that inside of us. God knows that about us. He knew that about Zechariah. And still, it didn't cancel or disqualify Zechariah from getting an upgrade Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Now, that unbelief did cost him his voice for the better part of the next year. But evidently, Zechariah made good use of the silence and deepened his walk with the Lord because the next time he spoke, he overflowed with the Holy Spirit in prophecy, praising God in ways that caused his friends and neighbors to just be filled with awe. They'd never seen anybody do something like that. So from this moment in Zechariah's life, we see that we shouldn't resist it or resent it when God stirs up the water of our faith tank. I, I think it really is a good thing to have an accurate reading and awareness of where we are yes. faith-wise. Deception is very yes. deceiving. But for God to love us enough to show us, mm, no, that's, you got some stuff that'll make the water cloudy in there. Let's deal with that. Let's get that out. And we don't ever need to be embarrassed or afraid when it happens. God is always working for our good. And his timing is perfect. Now, like Zechariah, Elizabeth was an above reproach person. She too carried the burden of years of unanswered prayers. And in her culture, she would have also have had to endure the stigma, the shame, maybe even the disgrace of being barren. Have you ever had a time when you felt less than, 
in comparison to other people, and, and yet you weren't able to do anything to change it. I suggest one of the really, really hard, horrible things about social media is the amount of comparison, envy, and craziness that's released on the world. I think more than ever before, people deal with this because you, most of the time what you post on social media is the good stuff that's going on, right? And so it looks like everybody's only got good stuff going on in your life. You're not usually posting when things are so terrible. And now there are a few people that post too much stuff like that on Facebook too. But, but, uh, but for the most part, social media is all, and, and so you can get stuck in this comparison game. Like they've got it so much better than me and their life is so much uh, easier than mine and all those kind of things like that. Listen, God has a plan for each of our lives. That plan is being worked out. God makes everything beautiful in its time. And God is in the waiting. What we do in the waiting, how we handle the waiting, that's up to us, and it can make a big difference. It's a worthy pursuit to keep our faith alive, engaged throughout the waiting. And I believe somehow Elizabeth had done that. Somehow she still had faith and expectancy even when she was well past childbearing age. When she finally did become pregnant, immediately her testimony was one of gratitude. From the overflow of her heart, her mouth spoke. The Lord has done this for me. Amen. In these days, he has shown his favor. And as it was with Elizabeth, so it'll be with us. When we keep our faith and our expectancy alive, we stay positioned to experience our own for nothing is impossible with God moments. Six months into her pregnancy, Elizabeth's young relative, Mary, came to live with them. At the first sound of Mary's voice, hello, Elizabeth, at the first sound of her voice, that baby in Elizabeth's womb jumped. And the baby and Elizabeth were both filled with the Holy Spirit just by hearing Mary come into the room and say, hey, just that first sound of her voice. Listen, I want to encourage you, don't get lulled into thinking that the Holy Spirit only showed up like that on Pentecost and after. There's several places throughout the scripture where the Holy Spirit came upon people way before Pentecost happened. And the Christmas story is completely saturated with Holy Spirit sightings. Several years ago, I did a series, a Christmas series on the Holy Spirit and Christmas. I think I saw a few copies of that series uh, in the bookstore. It was, it was many years ago, so it's probably not online. But if you're interested in finding out more about that, uh, that's there. This commercial has been brought to you by the Impact Bookstore. Anyway. <laughs> Anyway, back to where we were. So after Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit in that moment, Mary's there and all that is so beautiful because after she was filled with the Spirit, God used her to speak words of comfort and encouragement to Mary, who was at a very strategic and vulnerable time in her life. Uh, interestingly, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they'd served the Lord so long, so faithfully, so, so many years. And that turned out to be a pretty sharp contrast to the central person involved in Jesus becoming the reason for the season. Look down at verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. We get all that information in detail, and then we get, and her name was Mary. And the angel of the Lord went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And it says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Now, Mary was a young girl, probably in her very early teens, 
and she lived in a small town with a bad reputation. Can anything good come from Nazareth was a common saying in that day, even 30 years later when Jesus' ministry is public and he uh, reaches out to a man named Nathaniel. Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? That saying was still in the air, still happening. Well, God's resounding answer to that was yes, yes. And like her distant relative David in Mary, God once again affirmed, people look at outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. Of all the women who had ever lived in the history of the world, this freshly betrothed girl was the one chosen to be the mother of Jesus. Galatians 4, 4, and 5 says it this way. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of the sons and daughters of God. That is all well and good for us. But for Mary, in her culture and in her day, out-of-wedlock pregnancies were a potential death sentence. But even before Mary heard what Gabriel had to say about that, the Bible describes Mary as greatly troubled by Gabriel's greeting. And this is a different level of troubled than Zechariah. This wasn't a stirring up of the faith tank. It reads the same in English. This is a different word in the Greek. In the Greek, this word means a shaking to the very core of her being. Uh, This word describes somebody that is wrecked and disturbed inside, completely agitated with every alarm going off in her. You know, I've read this story a bunch bunch of times, but I was thinking about it this week, and I thought, okay, the angel shows up, and he says, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Why would that cause you to go, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, what's going on? And so, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, because it seems like such a nice thing. It's not like, boom, boom, I'm coming like that or anything like that. I mean, it, greetings, you are highly favored. The, the, the Lord is with you. You know, it seems like that would be such a good thing. But then I was, I was thinking about it some more. And even as I was driving home last night after sharing this, I had one other thought about it. Um, it was an angel, but... It was an excited angel, too. I mean, you know, the angels have been waiting for this day to come, too. They knew what it meant. What Gabriel knew what he was declaring to her. And interestingly, there's exclamation points in his greeting. So, so maybe it was greetings and all the reverb and all that stuff going on. Because he was, you know, wasn't like, greetings, highly favored of the Lord. Glad to see you today. I mean, I think there was life coming out of it. So I, I don't know. Just speculating, but that thought hit me on the way. I'm thought, oh, yeah, but there are exclamation points there. That very well could be what, what caused her to be troubled in that way. But... But, um, you know, it's just a, it's a real moment. It's a real moment. And, and she, it, it describes her shaken to the very core, every alarm going off inside of her. And then Gabriel spoke again. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid. There it is again. Do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You'll be with child and give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and he'll be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. What happened here in this moment declared and revealed a maturity beyond Mary's years and experience, as well as the depth of character that only God had seen in her until then. And to her credit, Mary had quickly regained her composure after that big greeting by the angel. And after he tells her this amazing thing, she asks a very faith-filled, honest question. How will this be? Which is 180 degrees from and a much 
better question than how can I be sure? Can you see the difference? How can I be sure is unbelief. It's like you told me something, but I'm not sure. You're going to have to convince me that that's the truth. How will it be is you just told me something that I cannot grasp or understand in any way. How are you going to do that? Two different things. Not how can I be sure that's going to happen. It's like, I don't know how you're going to do it, but how are you going to do it? Two completely different things. The proof that it's a much better question. It's, it's an, how can I be sure is a control question. How will it be? is a surrender question. It's a big difference. It's a big difference. And another proof that it was the right question to ask is she got a good answer. Look down at verse 35. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month for nothing is impossible with God. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me, as you said. And then the angel left her. Now listen, Mary had no grid work to process what overshadowed by the Holy Spirit meant. She'd probably never heard that phrase ever in her life before. There's no way she knew what that meant. But her humility won the day. I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me, as you said. I think humility is best understood in practice as agreeing with God, which is exactly what Mary chose to do. And her yes caused her to become one of the most honored and revered people in all history. We never know what's coming next, but whatever it is and whenever it comes, our yes is the best answer to have ready for God. Back in the 90s, there was a song called Trading My Sorrows that we used to sing a lot. And it has a very complicated chorus. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. That's the chorus. But I'm telling you what, we had some days singing that song, dancing and jumping around and spinning around and living in that word. And I'm telling you, that is still the best answer to have ready on our hearts. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. And consider, and consider this. If yes wasn't in our best interests, God would not be revealing himself with the information he just gave us that he needs our answer to. He only does what's good for us. So if, if, if no was the right answer, he, that's, then he wouldn't be there revealing that. But because yes is the right answer, he's revealing himself to us. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, yes, Lord. That's the right answer in that time. Which brings us back to Joseph. As good of a choice as Mary turned out to be, Joseph also proved to be a good choice too. Because in order for Mary's yes to be fully realized, Joseph's yes was needed too. Joseph was a working man in a small town with a bad reputation. He was from Nazareth too. He was a poor carpenter who had just been matched, just been betrothed to this precious, beautiful girl named Mary. Now, we know how God felt about Mary. Imagine how Joseph felt about her. Imagine the joy and the delight that he had in being matched up. This woman would be his wife. The heights of which probably were only matched by the depths of his despair when Mary was found to be with child. The angel told him, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph didn't have any more grid work to process what is conceived in her from the Holy Spirit. What that meant than Mary had to process, you should be overcome by the Holy Spirit. But what he did have 
was the foundation of a righteous life. The same word is used to describe Joseph. Joseph was a righteous man, it says in Matthew 1. Same word used to describe Zechariah and Elizabeth. The Message Bible said Joseph was noble and determined. This small town carpenter had lived a life that was equitable in character and action. He walked the walk. He was a real person. He was walking in truth. And that character empowered Joseph to be quickly submissive and obedient after his encounter with the angel. It also empowered him to make the choice to lay aside his reputation in order to cover and protect his beloved Mary. According to the biblical record, Joseph, like many creative craftsman types, was a man of few words. In fact, we don't have one word recorded in the Bible that Joseph spoke. But his life actions speak louder than any words that could have been written there. And his life choices reveal his character in clear and definitive terms. One other thing Joseph's character empowered him to be was a second in the divine drama that led to Jesus becoming the reason for the season. In a male-dominated culture, a very male-dominated culture of that day, Joseph willingly stepped into the best supporting actor role and allowed Mary to be the star of the show. So many things that God does today still requires the partnership and the covering of a second. Now, seconds are not mentors. It's a completely different thing. The ministry of a second is more like a prayer shield. The ministry of a second is a come alongside encourager. The ministry of a second is praying and supporting somebody. It's not coaching and directing them. They're living their life. They're doing what they're called to do. But what you're doing is you're cheering them on and you're for them and you're praying for them and you're there for them. When they uh, need somebody to just come alongside, you're there. You can do this. I- I'm-, I'm covering you. So thankful for so many of you that are uh, praying for our daughter. Uh, over in Albania Faith, and uh, I encourage you to keep doing that. She also, from her home church in Waco, they have a group that meets, uh, it's called a prayer shield, that on one Sunday a month, pray specifically for her. They pray and cover for her, and then they send her the stuff they're praying for her. I mean, it is such a beautiful, beautiful ministry. I, I mean, we, we feel so blessed by so many of you that are asking about faith and praying for faith, but this home church she spent uh, nine years of her life in in Waco. I mean, when they sent her out, they completely owned it. And they are praying for her. And the words they get and the things they send to her are so beautiful. And having been on the field, Cindy and I lived in the mission field two years uh, way back when we were just young. Uh, th- th- those prayers, that kind of support, that kind of encouragement is so invaluable. And it's the ministry of a second. I want you to think about the people in your life right now. Which, if any of them, has God placed there so that you can be a second, so that you can be a come-alongside encourager, so that you can cover them with your prayers as they grow and advance in their destiny with God. And if you don't think of someone like that, they don't come to mind right away, keep looking and keep your eyes open. Maybe you just didn't think of them yet, but also maybe they're not there yet. But more often than not, they're coming. God loves to have us match up with other people that we can just join our hearts to and pray for and celebrate as we see them grow and develop in the Lord. Like the four main characters in the Christmas story, God still works with people of all ages. You had Zechariah and Elizabeth who were old and had lived a long time. You had Mary who was young, super young, and Joseph probably somewhere in between them. And I do believe God is especially attracted to people who are working out and walking out their faith. 
because it is so much easier to work with people whose faith is in motion. You know, somebody that's laying down or sitting down, you got to pull them up or get them up. There's a lot involved in that. But when we're walking and moving with the Lord, and if we start to drift and he just bumps us a little bit, gets us back on course, so much easier to work with somebody whose faith is living, active, and in motion. I encourage us to keep living like that. And of course, God is always attracted to humility. We've got this sign over, these some pictures up over in the office. Walk past every day, go into my office, Micah 6. He has shown you what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's it. That's it. We talk about love God, love people. That's, that's the essence of it. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. That's what God requires of us. And as with all the personal stories in the Bible, they've been given to us so that we can learn from them and be inspired by them. And to this very day, God's most fundamental plans are almost always worked out in direct partnership with people like us. He chooses for us to be his hands. He could do it all without us. He could do it all without us. He owns the cattle on a thousand. He doesn't need us in that sense like that, except he's chosen that in order for his kingdom to be advanced and his kingdom to come, he's going to work with and through people like us. So let's be ready because we can be very sure of this. God's not finished with any of us yet. You can be completely sure of that because you're still here. When he's finished with you, you're gone. Every morning you wake up, every day you go through, he's not finished with you yet because you're still here. So let's keep praying. Let's keep actively waiting on the Lord. Let's keep believing. And let's have our yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, ready for when our suddenly comes. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for even just old familiar stories that still breathe so much life have so much encouragement, so much inspiration for us. And we pray, Lord, you would just uh, allow us to be people who are equitable in our character and action, that we would be people who live above reproach in all our ways, that we would be people that uh, when you stir up the tank within us, we just do the work to get it all cleared up and that you desire to heal us and make us whole and you desire for us to move into this level and this level and this level, go from faith to faith and grace to grace and strength to strength. That's your plan. And we say yes to that plan. Lord, we just, again, surrender and submit our lives to you. Here we are, Lord. Use us any and every way you can. And thank you for what you are doing in our lives. And I also pray for just an awareness, Lord, of, of um, people in our life that just need us to be praying for them. They, just, we, they, don't, they don't need us to tell them what to do. They just need us to be praying for them and covering them as they're walking with you. And I pray that we'd even take that up another level in who we are and how we live out each day. And we thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to do that in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right. So good.